the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hey, good afternoon and welcome, ladies and gentlemen. This is Gino Geraci. So glad you could join me on the program. Crosswalk with Gino Geraci. It is, of course, the program where we typically take your calls, answer your questions. And, of course, traditionally, for the last several months, we've had a uh, sort of a tough question Tuesday opportunity that if you want to call me with your very tough questions, you can call me at 303-873-1935 with your questions about the Bible, with your questions about worldviews and world religions. And, um, of course, you can ask me anything. That doesn't mean I'm going to know the answer, but you can ask me anything. 303-873-1935. That's the number. Jim is happy to take your call. 303-873-1935. We'll make every effort to get your question on the program. And even though it's Tough Question Tuesday, and I know that you're probably beginning to experience a little Russia-Ukraine fatigue, um, I, I, we're going to have to touch bases a little bit again on where we're at with that for the last several uh, over the last week, we've also been talking about this um, trucker convoy freedom convoy protest in Canada, the freedom convoy protest. And we had um, a guest on talking about it and things have of course escalated and many of you know that Pierre Trudeau, the or Justin Trudeau, Pierre was his dad, the Can- Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is taking drastic action to put an end to the Freedom Convoy protest, and he invoked um, a, a special provision where he could act unilaterally. And he invoked emergency powers, allowing the government, listen carefully, to seize cars, trucks, suspend their insurance, freeze the truckers' personal and corporate bank accounts. I mean, just literally in 48 hours, he invokes the emergency powers and then threatens the truckers' He he basically threatened them today in an almost sort of Dr. Evil way. If you listen to this, here's Justin Trudeau, and he's got that sort of slow, measured, calm statement, but it's, it's truly creepy. He threatened the trucker saying, you don't want to end up losing your license, end up with a criminal record which will impact your job, your livelihood, even your ability to travel internationally, including the United States. This from peaceful protesters. Now, again, we have to ask and answer the question, what is going on? Now, Trude- and, and this is the other interesting thing. Trudeau, in invoking the emergency powers, think martial law, 
said it would be limited in scope, that he's not calling in the military. And there's an immediate um, response by many, many people calling him totalitarian and a tyrant because he's threatening to strike at the truckers' livelihood and their ability to work forever in the future. Daniel B. Harrison, who's the dean of social media at uh, my friend Pastor John MacArthur's Grace to You ministry, said, quote, y'all are going to get enough of electing these young, power-hungry, totalitarian Turks. Trudeau said, quote, the Emergency Act will be used to strengthen and support law enforcement agencies at all levels across the country. But the Canadian Civil Liberties Association said the government had not met the standard for invoking the Emergencies Act. And so, again, that's the that's the ask and answer the question. What usually an Emergencies Act is state of war, nuclear holocaust. Uh, we're talking about something pretty draconian and pretty dramatic. Meanwhile, again, the traffic is still moving across the bridge. And producer Jim Nichols just sent me a note that the Ottawa police chief has resigned as the Canadian border protesters retreat. This is escalating. And again, officials, though, are turning back non-Canadians who are trying to join the blockade. On Sunday, two dozen people were arrested. Officials are also blocking donations from truckers. A Canadian judge froze more than $8 million in donations at a crowdfunding site. Heather Wilson, who's a co-founder of the U.S.-based crowdfunding site Give, Send, Go, is fighting back. It says, this is probably going to be the fight of our our life. Um, she t- told several different outlets, we're going to continue to fight for freedom. And Franklin Graham is starting to weigh in on this subject. And so if you're wondering how long, how long would it take to flip the switch and just become a totalitarian regime? And how long will the emergency powers last? So Franklin Graham basically spoke out and to uh, to on this subject. He said, "Quote: uh, Justin Prudeau's invoking the Emergency Act, which gives." The government more power to restore order in response to the Freedom Convoy protests, tweeted uh, Franklin. He said who, he's obviously the president of both the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association and Samaritan's Purse. He said the truckers are actually the ones who are trying to restore order by defending the freedom of Canadians. Think about those two narratives. Is the prime minister trying to restore order or are the protesting truckers trying to restore order? Here's what's at issue. Has the government's prohibitions, restrictions, mandates been an overreach for free Canadians or is something else happening? So in response to Trudeau, Alberta Premier Jason Kennedy voiced his opposition 
to the prime minister's actions, arguing the use of the Emergency Powers Act will only further inflame and potentially prolong the protests, he told NPR, which again isn't a bastion of conservative news. That's the National Public Radio. Again, Franklin Graham, for his part, said he agrees with Jason Kinney, saying, could this be a Canadian revolution? Could this be a Canadian revolution? Franklin said these chilling words, they want freedom, and they need our prayers. Can you imagine Who would have thought just four weeks ago, three weeks ago, we would be having this conversation and Franklin Graham would be saying, could this be a Canadian revolution? They want freedom. They need our prayers. And so I think that the Canadian people are going to push back a little bit because these kinds of threats aren't just simply going to be ignored. And I'm wondering what the prime minister is willing to do to make good on his threats. Hey, if you want to join me, it's 303-873-1935. Hey, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is Gino Geraci, and of course, we're taking your calls, 303-873-1935, 303-873-1935. Happy to take your tough questions, but also, you know, if you're a Canadian or a Canadian transplant and you're living within the sound of my voice, I would love for you to call 303-873-1935, and all of our Canadian listeners, and say, and weigh in on what's going on to the North. 303-873-1935. Let's see who's up. William! Welcome to the program. Hey, Gino, how you doing? Doing good. Good. Hey, got a quick question for you. Okay. Okay. I was thinking, I was listening to your uh, podcast on Spotify, and, uh, well, for some reason, uh, a, a question started stirring in my mind, and, and the question was, if we're all, all come from Adam and Eve, uh-huh. and then... And then, uh, you know, and then God destroyed the world with the flood, and, and Noah and his three sons came from that. Wouldn't we all be essentially related to Noah, and wouldn't we all be essentially of the same race? That would be exactly right. That would be exactly right. According to the Bible, what you're suggesting is exactly correct. Um, are there races. Now, remember, race is a word that we use to describe skin color and certain physical uh, characteristics or geographical characteristics, but you are exactly right. There is, according to the Bible, one race, human race. So you're exactly right. According to the Bible, we're all direct descendants of, of Adam and then direct descendants of Noah. And 
so so the way that I would think about your question then is, so how do we account for the diversity in skin color, the physical characteristics, and other things? It's because human beings are hardwired that way. But all of us are human beings made in the image of God. Now, also... God, as you go later on in the book of Genesis, he confuses the languages at the Tower of Babel. And so you have skin, you have physical characteristics coupled with a different language, and now a a different a geographical location, and there's a growing sense of hostility, animosity, fear, and suspicion as people begin to think of other people instead of as my family, as someone else. And, and William, that's why, as you can imagine, when you become a Christian, when you receive Jesus as your Savior and you experience exactly what you just experienced, hey, wait, according to the Bible, we're all brothers and sisters. We're all direct descendants. We share a common father, and we share a common Lord, and we share a common uh, future, then all of a sudden those fears, suspicions, and dare I even use the word prejudice, comes into question. And then we begin to think, hey, wait a minute, maybe my fear and suspicion is unfounded. And imagine you're in the military, for instance, and you go to a place and you fight with people who are black, who are Asian, who are Spanish. Now, all of a sudden, you're all from the same place, speaking the same language on a common mission. How, how common is it, William, for people to continue fear and prejudice when you, when you have to work as a unit and you have a common mission? Oh, it's, it's very uncommon. It's your brothers, your sisters. Exactly. And so it's my belief that God, in his wisdom, creates what I'm going to use the term racial diversity. And by racial diversity, I don't want anyone to come to the conclusion that I think that the Bible is saying something other than what it says. What I'm trying to do is account for the diversity because that's the way God did it, and with the confusion of the languages, it was God's intent to scatter the nations over the earth to fulfill his His will, and then to put people in specific places under certain circumstances also to fulfill his will. In other words, he didn't make us different so that we would hate each other. He made us different so that we would find him, seek him, love him, serve him. Oh, very well. You know, I was going to ask you some other questions, but it seemed like each question I wanted to ask you actually answered them in a row. So, hey, thank you so much, Gene. Hey, thank you for your call, and thanks for for uh, joining me. 303-873-1935, that's the number if you'd like to join me. I love those questions. You know... Um, if after the flood and then during the Tower of Babel, I think what happens is that human beings begin to segregate. Now, as they segregate linguistically, they also begin to segregate genetically. 
And as they segregate genetically, now all of a sudden there are certain genetic, I'm going to use the term emphasis, begin to take place. So uh, imagine you're in a different geographical location in direct relationship to where you are in the equator, your skin is going to get lighter or your skin is going to get darker. So the race and skin colors of humanity aren't mentioned in the connection of the Tower of Babel, but with the redistribution of people after what's what, what the Bible calls God confusing the languages, I'm thinking that there's a narrow genetic portal, if you will. So that means certain people are going to um, have curly hair or brown eyes or certain features and characteristics as people move into a geographical location. Now, so as those people groups grow and inbreeding takes place in that genetic sort of bottleneck, if you want to use that term, as that occurs generation after generation and the gene pool gets smaller and smaller to the point that people of one language family all had the same or similar features. So another explanation is that Adam and Eve possessed the genetic material to account for the colors of the rainbow, red and yellow, black and white. They are precious in his sight and every shade in between. And so this, in part, becomes an explanation when you look, and you probably know some uh, biracial families, if you will. I've seen pictures of a black man and a white woman with a biracial child who's very dark and a, a, a biracial child that is very, very light. And since God obviously desired humanity to be different in appearance, it only makes sense that God would give Adam and Eve the ability to produce children that would have all of these amazing uh, genetic, physical characteristics. So like, like William talked about, the survivors of the flood, Noah and his wife, eight people in the whole world, is it possible that Noah's daughters-in-law had other genetic features? Who knows? I'm going to suggest to you, um, we have no way of knowing, but that there's this full complement of a rich genetic reservoir. But whatever and however we explain it, remember genetic explanations were only available in the last 70 years, actually less, because I think the DNA molecule was discovered in my lifetime. 303-873-1935. But here's what we know. Human beings were made in the image of God to glorify Him. Take that to the bank. Hey, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. 303-873-1935. That's the number. Happy, happy, happy to take your calls about the Bible. 
um, about Jesus and about world religions, uh, world views. 303-873-1935. Let's see who's up. Ted, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for taking my call. I appreciate it. You're welcome. So I have a question, Revelation. I wanna, I'm want i driving, so I'm going to ask the question, hang up and listen. Okay. Um, does there need to be a third temple for Christ's return? Well, don't hang up just yet, okay? Okay. I think the way that I would answer that question is by by making sure I understand what you're talking about. If by the third temple you mean the first temple being Solomon's temple, the second, which was destroyed in 486, and then the second temple, uh, which was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD, does there need to be a literal Jewish temple on the Temple Mount before the return of Jesus? And my answer is yes. Now, but so when I use the term return of Jesus, I mean the second coming of Jesus. Um, I don't, so I, in my view, it doesn't preclude a rapture from taking place. Is it, does a temple have to be on the Temple Mount to um, either at some time? either during or immediately right around the rapture. Now, my own view is that there's going to be a time of judgment, a tribulation period, but the Bible does mention a temple. Right. And, and so if you want to, is that, am I clear well, about what you're asking me? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, because Revelation talks about that um, Satan needs to stand in or will stand in the temple and... Um, basically call himself God and demand that we worship him. Right. So for that to happen in, in the sequence of events, you know, there would, seems to me, need to be a temple standing. Right. And so in my view, and this is a, kind of the short answer, in Daniel chapter 9, it talks about um, he will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that's called God or, or his worship so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming, proclaiming himself to be God. Mm-hmm. So, be, so Daniel chapter 9, um, it says he, this, this future Antichrist figure makes a strong covenant with many for one week. It's a seven, a period of a seven. And for half of the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. Now, this is an interesting statement because that would appear that there's a renewal of sacrifice and offering. And right. it says, and on the wing of abomination shall come one who, is, who makes desolate until the decree end is poured out on the desolation. And Jesus refers to that exact thing in Matthew 24, 15, when he says, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, and then it says, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. And then 2 Thessalonians 2, 4, where it says, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Now, when Paul writes those letters, and that letter in Second Thessalonians, the second temple is already in existence. Right. But this future Antichrist figure has not made his way. So in my right. view still, 
there has to be what you just said, a third temple. There's a small problem, and you already know it. The Islamic <laughs> Dome of the Rock is on the site where the Jewish temple's supposed to be. Right. And then, you know, um, for the temple, I mean, for for the rituals to take place, isn't the birth of the the uh, spotless red heifer really crucial to that? And because I noticed that, or I know that they're waiting and have seen so many red heifers come up and then just not make the mark. Right. And that that's still kind of, you know, the, the moment they're waiting. For. Right. So I want to I want to bring out two things that I think are very very important. The first thing is that this sacrifice in 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 orthodox Judaism or in Judaism in certain sects of Judaism mm-hmm. a sacrificial system can't take place anywhere on the planet earth other than on that temple mount. And right. and you brought up the red heifer. And again, there are certain instruments and sacrificial objects that must be there, and and there can be no substitute. But but there's another important thing that we need to talk about, and that is, and that's a bad thing. In other words, if a temple is rebuilt and if sacrifices are reinstituted, this isn't a good thing. This is a bad thing. This is... Now, some people might think it's a good thing because they they see it as a um, an acceleration of end time events. Mm-hmm. But my view is that it's blasphemous and it's wicked. And the reason why it's blasphemous and wicked is because Jesus is the only satisfying sacrifice that God will accept. Right. And so, when a person offers a sacrifice other than the shed blood of Jesus Christ, they're offending God. Right, yeah. And so yeah. I think we need to keep that in the back of our mind as we talk about this important subject. Well, yeah, you know, it's just exciting to watch. Well, it is. And, you know, here we are, aren't we? We're on a roller coaster ride. We are. Well, I appreciate your time, Gino, and you're awesome, and I'll just keep listening. Yeah, my friend Ray Bentley was visiting with some people in Texas on the significance of the red heifer, and um, God in his grace and his mercy called him to go home in December of last year. And um, I was heartbroken. Earth is poorer, heaven is richer. But You know, and I pay, I'm, I'm playing, paying close attention to to that just because I know that they have everything ready and could rebuild that temple really in a flash. Right. And so that, that red heifer seems to be the only hiccup in, and, in and, the whole thing. And just for people who have zero idea of what we're talking about, in Numbers chapter 19, Eleazar the priest was to oversee the ritual outside the camp. And so there was this heifer, the red heifer. And when he leaves the, the camp, he oversaw the burning of the carcass of the red heifer. And as the red heifer burned, the priest was commanded to add cedarwood, hyssop, and scarlet wool to the fire. So the ashes of the red heifer were collected and stored ceremonially in a clean place outside of the camp, and they were used in the water of cleansing for the purification from, from sin. And so the imagery itself becomes a foreshadowing of the sacrifice of Christ. But to your point, Numbers chapter 19, verses 1 through 10, require this. Right, right. And I know I know they have to have the dyes exact for, 
for the robes. I mean, everything is just so got to be so precise. Exactly. And so, yeah, I don't know to, if I should get excited if they, you know, get this red heifer or terrified. Well, in a way, I think what I would do is split the difference and say, look up for your right. redemption draweth nigh. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Gino. I appreciate it. No, thanks for calling. 303-873-1935. That's the number if you want to join me on the air. 303-873-1935. What he brought up is very, very interesting. The imagery of the red heifer becomes a type and a picture of the sacrifice of Jesus for the believer's sin. It says, the Lord Jesus was without blemish, just like the red heifer was to be. As the heifer was sacrificed outside the camp, Numbers 19.3, Jesus is crucified outside of Jerusalem, Hebrews 13.11. And just as the ashes of the red heifer cleansed people from the contamination of death, so the sacrifice of Jesus saves us from the penalty and the corruption of death. And by the way, according to rabbinical tradition, there have been nine red heifers sacrificed since the time of Moses. Since the t- destruction of the Second Temple, no red heifers have ever been slaughtered. I'll have a little bit more about that when we come back. 303-873-1935. Hey, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is Gino Geraci. So glad you could join me, the th- number 303 303- 873-1935. We're getting some great questions. Love your questions. 303-873-1935. I'll have to come back to the whole red heifer thing. We've got Monty in Denver. Monty, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Gino. Hey, you're welcome. Uh, a question between the time, correct me if I'm wrong, between uh, the Lord's his second coming and uh, ushering in to the millennial kingdom. What I was wondering was, uh, I under, if I understand correctly, the Lord's coming back and bringing back the church, and there will be a time where there'll be the Lord's uh, banquet. And right. I was wondering, and the, the way I understand it. it if I do at all, but there's uh, a time where the the church will be there, the bride, and it reads, I believe it's in Revelation 19, that they'll be inviting guests to that banquet, and I was wondering who those guests were. Well, in Revelation 19, there's a picture. Uh, in Revelation 18 is the fall of Babylon. In Revelation 19, you said John has a vision. And the vision is of what you just called the marriage of the Lamb. Some people call this the marriage supper of the Lamb and, and his bride. And so what happens at the beginning of Revelation 19 is the removal of false religion, which is represented by Rome and Babylon, uh, which leave the faithful to accomplish um, the purpose for which Jesus came. Now, in the vision, John sees this heavenly multitude praising God because the wedding 
feast of the lamb, literally the marriage supper is about to begin. And the concept of that marriage is understood in part in the light of wedding customs during the time of Jesus. So the wedding custom had three major parts. First, there was a contract, uh, which the parents of the bride and the bridegroom and the parents of the bridegroom or the bridegroom himself would pay a dowry to the bride. This begins what's called the betrothal period, what, what we would call the engagement that was the period that Joseph and Mary were in when she was found to be with child in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, and in Luke chapter 2, verse 5. The second step uh, occurred usually about a year later when the bridegroom, accompanied by his male friends, went to the house of the bride at midnight or sometime in the night, created a torchlight parade through the streets, and the bride would know in advance that this is going to take place so that she would be ready with her maidens and they could all join in the parade and end up at the, at the bridegroom's home. That custom is the basis, by the way, of the parable of the 10 virgins in Matthew 25. Uh-huh. The third phase is what is here talked about the marriage supper itself, which might go on for days as illustrated in the wedding feast at Cana in John chapter 2. So what John's vision and revelation pictures is this wedding feast of the Lamb, Jesus and his bride, in the third phase. The implication is that the first two phases have already taken place. The first phase is completed on earth, when each individual believer receives Christ as their Savior. The dowry paid to the bridegroom's parent, God the Father, is the blood of Jesus. It's the sacrifice of Jesus shed to obtain the bride. The church on earth today is then betrothed to Christ. And like the wise virgins in the parable, believers are watching and waiting for the appearance of the bridegroom. Now, different people have different views. My view is that this becomes a type and a picture of this rapture, which I believe is going to happen, where Jesus comes for his bride. And the second phase symbolizes the rapture of the church, where Jesus comes to claim the bride and take her to his father's house. This is in heaven. So the marriage supper then follows as the third and final step. So it's, it's, it's my view that the marriage supper of the Lamb takes place in heaven between the rapture and the second coming during the tribulation. So while God is judging the planet Earth because of their repeated refusal to believe, the saints are celebrating in heaven. So attending the wedding feast is not only the church as the bride, but now to your question, the others, the guests. These are the Old Testament saints. This is Adam and Noah. This is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is Joseph and Judah. This is David going all the way up to John the Baptist. Now, the way that I'm going to answer this, I want to be very careful. In my view, they may not have been resurrected. These are glorified souls or spirits. So I suspect that there's this resurrection that's going to take place where the Old Testament saints along with the New Testament saints, receive their glorified body. And so the angel, look what it says in verse 9. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so I sus- So that's my take on it. Yeah, I was thinking along those lines, but I was quite clear. 
there, but the dead in Christ would rise at the rapture along with those as well. But right, uh, you, you're, you're saying that it's just uh, it's not their glorified bodies. It's well, I I I strongly body. suspect that the saints at the rapture are given a glorified body. I strongly suspect that at that res that that when it says we who are alive and remain won't precede those who went before us. So there, there, it could very well be that there is this resurrection of, of, of the old Testament saints. So, so when we ask the question, uh, when is the resurrection of the old Testament saints? This, this is sort of a, a bit of a, um, you know, there's different views that different people have, but it, 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 I'm so there's going to be a resurrection, and then there's going to be a final resurrection. And in my in my view, that's when the unsaved people are also going to be given a body. Now, it's it's inappropriate maybe to call it a glorified body, but it is a body that's going to be appropriate for eternity. So mm-hmm. you are, we are going to be given bodies that's going to be appropriate for where we will be forever. And I think that that's true both of Old Testament saints, New Testament believers, and both Old and New Testament unbelievers and make-believers. Ooh. Hopefully they have a fire suit on. Well, as you can imagine, <laughs> as you can imagine... There's probably no suit that exists that's going to take away the misery and the pain that comes from that kind of profound punishment. And I know that this brings up a whole nother set of issues, but again, the Bible is clear that there is a reward for those who love him and believe him, and there is a punishment. There is a consequence for sin. You know, in other words, people think, I've heard so many people say, why would a loving God send innocent people to hell? And the right answer has to be, he's not, he's not, he can't. He is sending guilty people to a place of punishment because they refuse to accept his provision for sin. So either God will save you or you'll save yourself. And if you save yourself... You're, you're going to need that fire suit that you were just talking yeah. about. Hey, thank you for your call. Well, I hope that, that was interesting. That things up. Thank you so much, Dean. I appreciate it. Well, you are welcome. Thanks for joining me. And again, in the next hour, I'll be back taking your calls, answering your questions. I might come back to a couple of things that we only got to just briefly touch on. And of course... I'm looking at what China's doing with Taiwan. I'm looking at what Russia's doing with Ukraine. I'm looking what both Iran and Israel are doing with each other and remembering to look up because it looks like, for many of us, our redemption is drawing nigh. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
the explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.